If you will get the picture with me, the Lord Jesus standing in a crowd of people. But it is a tough crowd. He's got what are called tax collectors and sinners around him. Now, the tax collectors in those days were a group of folks who were Jews who had decided they were going to come over and work with the Romans, and they were exacting taxes from fellow Jews. And the Jews hated the tax collectors because they saw them, number one, as traitors, and then secondly, they saw them as extortioners because the Roman government said that a tax collector could go and collect a certain percentage that Rome required, but then they could take whatever else they demanded and wanted from the folks because that's the way they paid their salaries. And so, literally, you could extort money as much as you wanted to. So they were hated uh, by the Jews. And then it says that he had sinners around him. Well, the sinners in those days were not your garden variety sinners. These would have been the prostitutes, the pimps, the Barry Madoffs, um, you name it, of the people that were in the community. So folks standing around, seeing this crowd around Jesus, basically they were the, you might call them the scum of the earth of the town. They were surrounding Jesus. And Luke's Gospel chapter 15 says that they were listening intently to what And the scribes and the Pharisees are the religious elites. And they are looking at this crowd that is surrounding the Lord Jesus. And they are beginning to gossip and criticize Jesus. What in the world is he doing allowing this crowd to surround him? And so Jesus knows the dynamics of what's going on. And so Jesus tells three stories in Luke's Gospel chapter 15. He tells the story of the lost coin... He tells the story of the lost sheep, and then the story we're going to look at today, he tells the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, if you'll turn with me to that passage of Scripture. Now, these scribes and Pharisees are just filled with jealousy and anger as they are looking at the Lord Jesus, and they don't recognize that their jealousy and their anger is literally causing that to come in between them and the Lord. And so they stand there gossiping and criticizing, and Jesus begins to speak this parable. Now, as we move into this parable, it was the custom among the Jews in those days that they would divide the inheritance between their sons. And when a father died... His inheritance was to be divided out. This story is different. It would have been an exception to the rule because in this story, they are the sons come and ask, or the younger son comes and asks for the inheritance, and that would have been almost unheard of. That wasn't supposed to be given out until the death of the father. Also in this story, it was customary that the oldest son, the elder son, would receive two-thirds more than the younger son would receive. So if you were the younger son, you only get a third. If you're the older son, you get two-thirds of the father's inheritance. Keep that in mind as we move through the story. Loose Gospel, chapter 15, and beginning with verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and took a journey into a far country. 
and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him both safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. Well, in this story... We've got three characters. We've got the father, we've got the younger son, and we've got the older son. Now this story is a little bit different than most stories because you've got one overarching plot, and that is that the younger son leaves and then he is later restored back into the family. But then you've got some subplots, and one of the subplots is the subplot of the older brother. And that begins in verse 25. And we're going to focus on this subplot today because normally when this story is told and preached on, we focus on the younger brother coming back and being restored. And we sort of read the second half of the story but conveniently ignore the second half of the story and don't bother to give it much attention. One of the things that's very interesting in this story when Jesus gives it is that he does not resolve the story. The story ends with the younger brother in the house celebrating the older brother out in the front yard, mad as a hornet, and the dad in agony standing in the yard between the younger brother inside and the older brother outside and trying to bring the two together. But Jesus doesn't end the story and wrap it up nicely for us. 
He leaves it open-ended. He leaves this story with the father in agony and the family split between them. Let's look first at this plot of the older son. Because again, this parable is in two sections. Verse 26, it says that when the older son comes in from the field, he's been out in the field working, totally unaware that the younger son has his younger brother has been restored, that there's a party going on and all that's happened. He's been out there working in that field all day long. And when he comes in, he, he hears this party music. In fact, the word that's translated music is the word from which we get our English word symphony. And he hears this music going on, beautiful music. Apparently the dad had hired a really good group of musicians in order to provide music for the party. And so he comes up and he hears this music and he goes and he finds one of the servants in the household and he says to him, and the idea of the Greek language here is repeatedly and eagerly he's saying, what's going on? What's going on? He's really excited. I mean, there's a party going down and he's probably thinking, man, I'm going to go in and have a big time tonight. What's going on? What's going on? And the servant looks at him and he says, oh, haven't you heard? Your younger brother has come back. And your dad's killed the fatted calf, which was the idea of one of the best animals that would have been in the flock. And they're throwing this great party on the inside, and this is just going to be awesome. Well, if the servant is standing there and he's looking at this brother, and the more he tells the story, I imagine if you could have watched what was going on, he would have noticed that when he started mentioning the younger brother had come back, that the smile and the eagerness turned to a scowl. And the voice of the older brother began to tighten. And that servant probably would have started backing up because he realized this was information was not being received well. You can't help but wonder if the servant would have said, Hey, you know, I, I'm just the guy delivering the message. Don't take me out just because you don't like the message. And this older brother begins to become incensed and angry. In fact, it's very interesting. Again, the, the Greek language that's used here speaks of someone who is boiling up in a rage. It really carries the idea of anger that is both swelling, that it is, that it is boiling up, and also that it's settled, that it is deep in his crawl. In other words, the anger that begins to boil out of this older brother was anger that had been seething and had been building for some time. And then when he gets the word that the younger brother is back, he really boils over in rage at what he's hearing. If you had been there in that front yard that day, you'd have seen that, you know, the old jugular vein starting to pop out and the face turning red and the voice really getting tough. He was ticked off that this party was going down. He was jealous of his younger brother and how he was being celebrated, probably suspicious of his dad's partiality to the younger brother. And as he moves through his anger here, you can tell he is comparing the treatment that the younger brother is getting to the treatment that he feels like he has always received. Folks, comparison, comparison will always kill your joy. Comparison will always kill your joy. And so never compare yourself to someone else. Man, we always are tempted to do that. But when we compare ourselves to someone else and what they're getting, we lose our joy in the process. He was close. I want you to think about the picture here. Here's the older brother. And he's standing there in the front yard. And geographically, his younger brother is probably 25 feet away. Dad is just a few feet away. But in that older brother's heart and mind, 
The younger brother was a million miles away, and so was dad. Someone has said of this story, it's possible to leave the father without ever leaving the farm. It's possible to leave the father without ever leaving the farm. Mark Twain once commented about a guy, he was a good man in the worst sense of the word. He was a good man in the worst sense of the word. And a child prayed one time, Dear God, make all bad people good and good people nice. Make all bad people good and good people nice. That brother, older brother, was a good man, but he was a good man in the worst sense of the word. He was not nice. Notice verse 29. He begins to pour out his anger to the dad. And the idea of the dad is that the dad walks up to him and it says that he, the dad begins to entreat him. And, and the Greek language that's used there is a, a verb tense. We don't have it in English, but it, it carries the idea that you're just repeatedly saying, would you come in, would you come in? In other words, the dad is just intensely over and over and over trying to get this older brother to come in and to reconcile with the rest of the family. And notice what he says to, the, to his father in response to it. Verse 29, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. These many years I have served you. It's the idea they are not saying, Dad, you know, I love being on this farm and I love being with you. It's more the idea this has been a slavish relationship for me. All these years I've been here and I've shown up and I've gone out into the fields and I've worked every day and I've done everything that was required of me. You see, the son, the older son, had a performance-based relationship with his dad. You tell me i got to do this and I'm going to go out and do it. And if it means I have to start working out in the field early in the morning and work till the evening, I will perform, I will do what's asked of me and I will do what's expected of me and I will do what I have to do as your eldest son. No sense here that I enjoy it, I want to do it, I'm doing this out of love for you. It's rather more of a performance-based relationship. I'm just doing what I have to do. I'm even working in order to be loved. Notice what he says in verse 29. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate. All these years I've been working for you, Dad, and you never gave me a young goat. You never threw a party for me. The fact that the older brother was with his dad every day, shared meals with him, they spent all kinds of time together, didn't amount to anything to the older brother. I never got the party that he's getting. Notice verse 30. He says, he doesn't talk to him about his brother. He doesn't call his younger brother his brother. He says, this son of yours, this son of yours. You can hear the contempt and the sarcasm that's in it. This son of yours. How do we play the older brother? How do you and I play the older brother? Number one, the older brother missed the heart of his father and did not recognize the actions his father had taken of restoring, of loving, of accepting. The father had brought the younger son back and restored him. Had it not been for the father the younger son would have died. And how do we play the older brother? We miss our father's heart. And we don't recognize God's work in somebody's life. 
Number two, we understand our relationship with God as being performance-based, and we don't take time to enjoy being with Him. You see, as some believers, Christians, churchgoers will say, God, I've been going to church for years. I've been reading my Bible for years. Every day, Lord, for years, I've been checking off the list of everything I'm supposed to do as a good Christian and a good churchgoer. We're not doing it because we love the Lord and we enjoy being with Him and we enjoy hanging out with Him. It's all about performance. It's all about making sure we check off the list. It's all about making sure that we do everything that's expected of us. But there's no joy in it. That son went to bed every night and he could check off every requirement that he was supposed to meet as a good elder son. But he had no real relationship with his dad. And how many times do you and I run the risk of checking off all the blanks of everything we're supposed to do as the servant of the Lord, and yet at the end of the day, we're not doing it because we love the Lord and we enjoy hanging out with the Lord and we want to be with the Lord. We're just doing it because it's expected of us and what we expect of ourselves and what someone else expects of us and what we think God expects of us instead of we really enjoy it. Third, he didn't care about his younger brother, and we do that when we don't really care about sinners. We either think we're too good to care about them or we've given up on them. We don't have the Father's heart and the Father's eyes. Four, we ignore, resent, and can even try to undo the blessing of God on someone else's life. We deserve what they got. That is exactly what the older brother is saying here. You never killed the calf for me. You never had a celebration for me. We feel like we worked harder than they did, and they got it all. This is particularly tough in family life. When you feel like you have done and been all that you could do and be as a child or as a parent or whatever, and the other sibling or the other relative is the one that everybody seems to celebrate, and you're the one who gets thrown under the bus. Anybody ever been there? I pulled the time. I did what was expected of me. I poured my heart out. I was faithful. I did what was expected of me as a child or as a parent or as a grandchild. And then that sorry, no good for nothing, sister, brother, relative, whatever showed up, and they get all the attention. Now, this particularly gets rough at a family reunion, or maybe I should call it a family disunion. When you show up and you have played the game like the game is supposed to be played, and then the sorry relative shows up who hasn't, and everybody seems to be so excited about the relative who showed up, and you're standing over there, you know, holding your thing of banana pudding in your hands and watching them get all excited because so-and-so didn't showed up, and they didn't pay hardly any attention to you when you showed up. And the truth be known, if you really did with that banana pudding what you'd like to do with that banana pudding, it wouldn't be eating it. It'd be putting in some people's faces and, and letting them, you know, eat it force-fed into them, you know, that kind of deal. And we, we resent and we see what other folks are getting that we feel like we should be getting. And, man, we just boil on the inside about that. How do you handle that when that happens? 
only way I can tell you to handle it is you just have to give it to the Lord and say, God, you just work this thing out in your own way. Because all I'm going to do is nurse an ulcer inside myself on top of all, everything else I'm feeding if I just let this thing get to me. Number five, we can make a list of everything we've done for the Lord, but we don't have any joy. You know, he says, I've served you all these years. How many folks, and folks, those who serve the Lord for a long time, we can fall into this trap a whole lot more than younger believers. Lord, look at all that I have done for you. But we don't have any joy. Now, you've seen Christians before that are mad for God. And have you ever seen believers that you get around them and they're going to tell you everything they've done for the Lord, but they're going to tell it to you with anger and resentment and bitterness, uh, etc. And just no joy there. And that's what the older brother did. And here's the final way, and please catch this. We can go out... And if we serve people in the name of the Lord and then turn around and trash the people that we just served, it shows that our heart's in the wrong place. You know, I went out and I helped those people and I fed those people. They were starting no good for nothing people. They, you know, they wouldn't need a meal if, I, if they hadn't potatoed themselves like they should have. But I went out there and I fed them. Sorry about you, no good for nothing people, et cetera, et cetera. You know, et cetera. And we, and we do that. You know, I went and I taught that Sunday school class this morning. You know, I'm the nastiest bunch of children I've ever seen in my life. But I went out there and I taught them. And I, and I work with the senior adults. They're the gripiest, you know, meanest bunch of people I ever dealt with. But I did it, you know. I ate the sorry cake they put in front of me or whatever. You know, and, and, and on and on and on it goes and, and, and we've all been there you know we, we, we've served the Lord but Lord we go around and we trash the people that we just served um, etc can't wait to get walk five feet from them so we can start to trash it, uh, of them etc and that's what this brother was doing you know he's standing there I've done it I've been faithful daddy I've done everything I can and, and Lord you're blessing him you're a sorry daddy and that scumbag is standing in there having the party thrown in his favor right now I don't even consider him my brother etc we trash the people that we serve and when we do that we are playing the older brother now notice verse 28, what the dad does. It says he entreated him. He's pleading with him. He first calls him son, which was a term in those days of closeness and endearment. He says, verse 31, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. What, he's, what is he trying to say to him? He's trying to say, son, you are always with me. All that I've got is yours. You have had, you have, and you will always have the close relationship with me. Treasure the time we have together. Treasure the memories we have made and will make together. Treasure this relationship. The big issue here is not a party. It is not a calf. It is not the robe. It is the time we have had, the closeness we have right now, and the closeness we will ever have. Folks, the greatest negative to jealousy is that we miss our relationship with Jesus. We miss the treasure of a relationship with Jesus. When we get caught up, and I don't, they got the blessing, I don't. They got the attention, I don't. They got the position, I didn't get it. What we are focusing on is what we don't have, and we are missing the treasure of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, the greatest blessing that we've got as a follower of Jesus is not the blessings. It is the blessing of knowing him and loving him and walking with him. It is the greatest blessing is just the treasure of being able to know Jesus. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my walk with the Lord, when I get to pouting and crying about I don't get this and I don't have that, I don't have the other, and I deserve this, and I've earned that, etc., etc., the Lord has to walk up behind me and put his hand on my shoulder and say, David, it's not about this and the that and the other. It's about me, and it's about the relationship that you can have with me, and it is about the, the genius, the goal, the wonder of every day is just knowing me and walking with me and serving me and being in my presence. That's what the dad was trying to communicate to his son. You're missing the most important thing here. It's not the party that you feel like you didn't get. It's been the daily relationship with me. Look at how many lunches we've been able to eat together. Look at how many dinners we've had together. Look at the fishing trips we've been able to share together. Look at that. All that goes way beyond some party that your brother is having. And he's missed all this time together. Then notice verse 32. He looks at his, his older son and he says, It was fitting for me to do this. It's literally the idea this was necessary. It had to be done. And what he, the dad is trying to say is, Son, I want you to see this. We got restoration going on here. We got unity in the family going on here. We got your brother who's not dead to the family anymore. He could have been laying out there in in the street somewhere. He's back. We had to celebrate. We couldn't hold back celebrating what I've done. And folks, when God saves someone and restores someone and God begins to use them, and those of us who've been at it for a while get jealous about that and tore up about that, the Lord's trying to say to us, I had to bless this person. I had to pour out my my spirit upon this person. This had to happen because that's who I am and that's how I operate and that's what it means to be a heavenly father and that's what it means for me to be God. Don't fight it. Run with it. Enjoy what I'm doing. He, verse 32, he reminds him, for this is your brother. Find joy in what I've done. But I want you to see the end of the story. Verse 32 was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He's alive because the dad had made him alive. He was lost and he's found. He's found because the dad reckoned he brought him back. And then notice there's a period. And then the 16th chapter of the book of Luke begins. Jesus ended the story. He didn't end the story with the older brother going back in. He didn't end the story with the family all back together having a great reunion. Jesus intentionally ends the story with the brother still mad, the younger brother celebrating, and the father standing out in the front yard in agony. And that's how Jesus ended the story. We always look for God to put all the things together and put it in a nice box, put a bow on it, and it's all over and done with. But Jesus intentionally did not do that here. Why? 
Why does he leave this unresolved? And you see in this story, the person who's most in agony is the dad. Those of you that are parents, grandparents, the worst agony I can guarantee you you go through in life is when your kids or grandkids fight with each other and you can't get them to get along. When you want to bring the family together and the family refuses to come together, it's the worst agony you can go through. And that is exactly where the dad is in this story. And why didn't Jesus wrap it up? Because I think what Jesus is trying to say to us is this. There are some things in life that only we can choose to do. God isn't going to force us to do it. He isn't going to force the situation. He cannot make us walk in the house and and become part of the family. When we say, I'm going to hold the bitterness, I'm going to hold the resentment, I am not going to reconcile, God is not going to force our hand on that. He can't force our hand on that because love and reconciliation is always a choice. It is not coercion. God can't even coerce that. And so Jesus left it wide open because he leaves it wide open for us. We have to choose to walk into the home. We have to choose the joy that's in there. We have to choose to reconcile. We have to choose to whether we're going to have the Father's heart and the Father's eyes. It is our decision. He waits on our decision. But let me throw one more thing to us. Our Father waits, but our Heavenly Father waits with a broken heart. He waits with a broken heart. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask that by the work of the Holy Spirit you would shine a light on our own hearts and minds. For Father, if there are folks that we are unreconciled with because we are refusing to walk from the yard of our lives into the home, And where you have forgiven and restored and hugged and accepted, we refuse to do that. God, we ask that you would help us to hear your voice. Lord, if that older son had decided to go in, all he had to do was take the hand of his dad, and together they would have walked into that house. Lord, sometimes for us, maybe it's a journey that we can't take by ourselves. But you don't ask us to take it by yourself. You ask us simply to take your hand, to trust you, and to walk with you into that place of reconciliation. Drawing from your strength and what you are doing and have already done and will do. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to give you a moment right now. Give us a moment in silent prayer to go before the Lord and say, God, if there is a person, particularly a relative in my life, that there is estrangement with, God, if I'm playing the older brother, would you show that to me? And Lord, would you help me, God, not to break your heart any longer, but to take your hand and to walk with you into that place, back into that relationship. Lord, that journey 
which is only a few steps, maybe one phone call, email, text, maybe the toughest we ever do. But Lord, you will walk with us and you will walk in it and you will take us by the hand as we take that step. And Father, ultimately, who gets healed is not just the person inside the house, it's us. It is us. In just a moment, we will sing a song of invitation. I want to invite you as we sing, if you need to continue to talk to God about a relationship, just continue to talk to Him about it while we sing. If you need to pray, come forward and pray, feel free. If you do need to trust Christ as your Savior and give your life to Him, I invite you to come and make that decision. We'd love to pray with you about that. Let's just move with the Spirit of God and whatever He's doing in our hearts and minds right now. Lord, have your way with us, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.